It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Major breakthroughs in artificial intelligence over the last few years have created opportunities for huge advancements in many fields. And a lot of AI work is open source, which will speed up progress even more. But that means bad actors can also get their hands on these tools. What's the right balance and how do we approach and harness the powers of open source innovation, which is incredibly useful for access uh, for people, companies, startups, innovations, with the considerations you might want to put into place around you know, access to those systems. James Van Yeeka is the Senior VP of Research, Technology and Society at Google. Part of his job is to think about how to build guardrails into AI advancements so we end up in the best case scenario. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations presented at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Manika has been involved in AI research since the 1990s and has truly seen the field evolve from the inside. In addition to his work at Google, he's also the vice chair of a national committee making recommendations to President Biden on how to proceed with AI safely and fairly. New York Times journalist Thomas Friedman has known Manika for years and interviews him on stage at the festival. They talk about where AI is going and what we all need to be looking out for. Here's Friedman. So one of the amazing things about James is he has been doing AI before it was cool. Um, uh, he's been doing AI since the 1990s, um, uh, back where he was born in Zimbabwe. Um, and so it makes, uh, James therefore is a perfect person to ask, um, James, how did we get here? <laughs> well, the, um, uh, first of all, thank you. I mean, the, the, the history of AI is kind of interesting, and I'll kind of put maybe um, three time frames in mind. So 1956, uh, 1988, 2010-ish, um, and three years ago. Let me just describe mm. what I mean by that. So the, the term AI came into use at a very precise moment in 1956. There was a conference, the famous Dartmouth Conference, where a group of AI researchers, people like Marvin Minsky, John McCarthy, and others, all got together, and they actually had an audacious proposition. They said, well, we think if we spend a couple of months over the summer, we can actually develop systems that can reason, think, like humans. Uh, they think they, could do the, they mm. thought they could do this over the summer. Mm. So that's when the term came into use. Now, there's a reason why they were that optimistic, because in the few years in the run-up to that, there'd actually been some very promising progress in algorithms that could do things like play checkers and a whole bunch of things. So there was a reason for their optimism. What then happened was uh, some euphoria for about a decade, uh, and it's in that euphoria that things like movies like 2001 A Space Odyssey were made, uh, that had you know, HAL and the possibilities of AI. But then from roughly about the early 70s, Tom, to about the late 80s, 90s, is what's generally called kind of the AI winter, when people thought nothing much was happening in AI, that in fact they thought that all the expectations mm. had not been met and not much progress had actually happened. And then starting in about 19, in the late 1980s, so that's where the 1988 date comes in, roughly thereabouts, uh, a new group of researchers started to say, well, we've been doing this all wrong, um, you know, because up until then, what people have been trying to do is to this idea of 
build, trying to understand how humans reason and think and represent knowledge and try to write rules for how we do that. They thought that was the way to get mm. to artificial intelligence and that didn't work as spectacularly well as they had hoped. So the, the new idea, which is actually an old idea by the way, was this idea of machines and systems that learn where they don't get rules written for them, they learn from examples, kind of like how perhaps how humans learn. So that's where the kind of neural network approaches started to come into fruition about 1988 or so. So let me fast forward, uh, for, fast forward to roughly about 2010-ish. At that point, these deep learning neural network approaches started to actually work. Uh, and for a couple of reasons, first of all, there's lots of data that became available from the internet. Um, the, the kind of computer systems and architectures that we could use got much better and became the kinds of systems that are good at doing these deep learning techniques. And the techniques themselves got better. So these things started to work. And that's when we started to take off. And so a lot of natural language processing, image recognition systems, all of these things started to happen. And uh, I'll get to, uh, then I'll fast forward to about three ish, four years ago. It's actually more like 2017, when a particular paper was actually published by Google Research. This was the paper that introduced the transformer architectures. The paper was actually called uh, Attention's All You Need. Now, what that transformer architecture was is basically launched this whole wave of what we now think of these large language models and these generative systems that we're all starting to experience now. So it's been a remarkable uh, period. Lots of other things happened, of course, but it's been a remarkable period. period. Just, just talk about that, um, or two things. One is 1992, you're back in Zimbabwe now. Oh, yeah. How in the world did you get into AI back then? You know, because it was early on in the invention. And I also then want to bring you forward to that Google paper, which more and more seems to be extremely important in this story. Right. Um, why would they have given it out for free? And what was the exact new, new thing in that paper? Okay. Um, so, um, so I, I grew up in Zimbabwe in 1980, I was an undergraduate and I was looking around for a research project and it so happened that there was a visiting uh, postdoc from Canada and it so happened this postdoc was there for a year, had also worked with people like Jeff Hinton. Now Jeff Hinton, for those of you who know the history, was on the people who actually initiated all these deep learning neural network algorithms. So he came and said, well, I have an idea for you for a research project. Why don't you work on this neural network wow. stuff? So, that was actually the first paper I ever published in anything, but I did go on mm. after that to, to do a PhD in AI and robotics at, at Oxford. Mm. Um, but you asked about the Google paper. Uh, the Google paper. Yeah, I, I think um, one of the things that was different, if you had looked at these deep learning techniques up until that paper, they roughly were using things that are called classifiers and what are called convolutional neural networks and also other things that are called RNNs. I won't, you know, there's a whole bunch of these kind of techniques mm -hmm. for doing deep learning. Well, the transformer architecture introduced a way to do that in a massively parallel way. In mm -hmm. fact, maybe the way to think about it is to explain how these large language models work might be more useful. Uh, you know, we're all experiencing them with BARD and ChatGPT and so forth. By the way, the, the T in GPT refers to transformer architecture. Oh, interesting, by the way. interesting. So the way these systems work is they, they are trained on lots and lots and lots and lots of words. 
uh, technically, they think of them as tokens, because the tokens could be words, they could be audio, they could be images, it could be lots of things. Mm. So they're trained on, but think, for now, we just talk about them as words. And what they're doing in that learning is they're learning to predict what comes next. So if you think about, you know, I don't know, peanut butter and jelly, right? We, right? But imagine if you blanked the jelly part and say, well, what comes after peanut butter and jelly? So they learn to predict, oh yeah, it should be jelly, right? So they learn to predict what comes next. They also learn to figure out associations in the words that they're learning. And they also, the so-called kind of embeddings. And if the model is big enough and you train it long enough, and by the way, these models are trained for like months, they get to be very, very, very good at mm. predicting the next thing. So when you prompt it, what you're really doing is asking to complete the prompt. Hmm. That's how they work. Now, you asked why, you know, why did Google publish this? Well, first of all, the, the field of AI, there's been an incredible amount of research and publishing going on, uh, places like Google Research, Microsoft Research. In fact, one of the things that's different compared to when I was doing my PhD, back then, if you're looking for where's the most cutting-edge research, you'd have looked at university research labs in AI, these days, when you look at where the most pioneering papers most are being published from, they're mostly coming out of many of these private sector research labs. So Google has a tradition of publishing papers, making them available. Uh, While we're on that subject, um, James, um, I read a story just yesterday that Baidu um, announced that its um, Ernie um, uh, generative AI system uh, was producing better results than ChatGPT or BARD. Um, in taking things like law review and medical exams and whatnot. Um, and I, I found that hard to believe only because I, I think if you asked Ernie, tell me the most, 10 most hilarious jokes about Xi Jinping, I'm not sure Ernie would respond. So um, I'm interested in, is that true? Should we believe that? W where is China right now relative to BARD and ChatGPT, uh, OpenAI and Microsoft? Well, I think if you if your question is, you know, where you know where are they in terms of kind of pioneering research in this field more broadly, uh, I think we all generally think that they're behind. Mm -hmm. Question is how far behind is the debatable one? Mm -hmm. Is it six months? Is it two years? Is right. it five years? That's debatable because uh, you have to be tracking patterns, publishing, yeah. and so forth. So it's very hard to actually track exactly how far behind they are. If it's useful, there's a fabulous project I've been involved with at Stanford called the AI Index that actually tracks publications mm -hmm. and pioneering breakthroughs in the whole field and looks at it globally. It's actually a wonderful mm -hmm. resource if you want to see who's ahead on machine vision, mm -hmm. natural language processing, all these things. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think we think that they're behind. Mm -hmm. uh, now, when you start to compare these systems, uh, there's a couple of things going on, Tom, uh, which is at least in the large language model space. So you've got these underlying models underneath them. Uh, in our case at Google, we've got models like Lambda, we've got models like Palm, Palm 2, and so forth. And obviously, OpenAI have, have theirs, you know, GPT 3.5, GPT 4, et cetera. You've got all this, so there's work going on in these underlying models. Engines, yeah. Engines, if you like. And they keep getting better. And, you know, on any one day, somebody's got a better one than the others, mm -hmm. you can do more things. And so, so mm -hmm. they keep getting better. That's what you have tucked in under the, right. under the hood, if you right. like, if you use your engine analogy. Yeah. Uh, but what users experience is a, is a highly kind of guardrailed, productized interface on top of it. 
some are more guardrailed than others. Uh, you know, we can always probably speculate right. how they've guardrailed the, the Baidu one right. <laughs> in that regard. But they're typically guardrailed. And I think the reason you want to do that, at least in, in our case, is you don't want these systems to answer prompts like, how do I build a Molotov cocktail? Or how do I build a bomb? So you kind of guardrailed them so that they, you, know, you don't want them to give out, because these systems are also capable of giving you sexist outputs, toxic outputs, biased outputs. So you, you kind of try to guardrail them. But I think this question of how do we think about these kind of guardrails and what's appropriate in a responsible society will probably vary from place to place, culture to culture, country to country. So yeah. your Biden question is interesting yeah. uh, as to how perhaps they might have chosen to guardrail it. Um, just on this sort of security question, then I want to leap forward. Um, could North Korea, for instance, obtain an open source Meta's version of it? It may not be the best, but open source version of it, um, and then build on that in ways that could be very troubling. Well, you're picking at one of the, I think, one of the very lively debates in the field at the moment, uh, which is how do we think about access and open source to the or, or, to these systems? So. You know, open source has been an incredibly positive, powerful thing in democratizing access to innovation. I mean, there's so many innovations that have come from, you know, Linux to, I mean, even in the case of Google, Androids and open source platforms. So, so open source is an incredibly useful innovation, a way to innovate mm -hmm. and democratize access because you never know where the innovation is going to come from, which is great. At the same time, there's now some who start to worry about having these very powerful models uh, be available in open source. Because come back to this guardrailing conversation yes. we were just having. While you can guardrail BOD, it's harder to guardrail the underlying model. Use the yeah. Lamborghini uh, example we were talking about. Oh, oh um, so is, 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 is the way to think about it is imagine if you have a car. This is what Tom and I were just having this conversation <laughs> earlier. Imagine if you had a car and you can always swap out the engine under the car. Right? But you can also put governance to stop the car from going as fast as it technically, theoretically can go. But imagine if you took out that engine and just made it available without any yeah. governance on it. And imagine what it could do. Now, in, a, in the hands of a race car driver, that's great. They can win a race, they do well. In, you know, in, the, in the case of somebody else who may want to use that engine for yes. something else that we may not like, that may not be a good thing. Yeah. So I think the debate now that I think we're all having, I think, you know, curious to see how people think about this is, what's the right balance and how do we approach and harness the powers of open source innovation, which is incredibly useful for access uh, for people, companies, startups, innovations, with the considerations you might want to put into place around, uh, you know, access to those systems. Maybe we need registries, maybe we need different ways to register open source approaches. Mm -hmm. This is one of the key questions, especially if you're concerned about national security. So James, you are on the, you're on the panel um, advising President Biden on this. Um, what are sort of the early um, recommendations you're making to the administration? Um, by the way, what Tubbs referring to, there's a national AI committee that was set up which is, consists of uh, you know, people from very different backgrounds, from research, innovation, uh, you know, uh, civil society, academics, nonprofits, in labor, all of that. And so I'm on this committee, I happen to be the vice chair of it. So our mandate, this was congressionally set up, hmm. was to focus initially on five areas, and we're working our way through them. One is this idea of how do we build trustworthy AI systems, was kind of our, one of our mandated 
responsibilities to think about. The other one is how do we think about the workforce implications of these technology work and workforce implications. The other was to think about how do we think about continued U.S. innovation leadership uh, in this field, given all the amazing possibilities that are going to be possible from this technology, which we should talk about at some point right. um, uh, in this conversation. And then also, how do we think about our international alliances and collaborations in this context? We've also recently now set up, at, at the request of Congress, a law enforcement subcommittee. Hmm. Uh, that also is looking specifically at kind of these systems in law enforcement. So we just put out, for those who are interested, the, our year one report, mm. which came out about a month ago with recommendations that we made uh, uh, to the president in these various uh, areas. But this is Im important work. I should say, though, Tom, that one of the things I always feel is important to say in, in kind of where are we in AI I think the, the public conversation, and quite frankly all of us, have been taken up by these developments in these large language model systems, and mostly because we're now all experiencing them and seeing the, the possibilities of them directly. There's actually so much more other things going on in the field uh, that aren't about these large language models. Talk about AlphaFold, just as an example. Oh yeah, that's a good one. So this is an example of AI kind of in, in science. So what AlphaFold is, there's been a, um, what some call a 50-year grand challenge. So if you're in biology, I'm sure there are probably some people working in the life sciences and biology in the room. Uh, there's also a challenge of how do we properly understand protein structures, the structure of proteins. Uh, proteins are made up of amino acid sequences. Uh, they're fundamental to understanding biology, drug discovery, therapies, diseases, and all of that. And up until AlphaFold, uh, we were only slowly making progress to understand the protein structures of all proteins. And in fact, the, the, the rough rule of thumb was that it would typically take, you know, as, you know a PhD student and, and, and their friends, uh, you know, a few years to figure out the protein structure doing lab work of one protein at a time. And if we had kind of been going at that rate, it would have taken us a very, very long time. I and mean, the human body has the roughly 20,000 proteins in the human proteome. It would have taken us a very long time to fully understand all those protein structures. Well, with AlphaFold, which is an AI algorithm uh, that one of our teams developed, we were able to understand the protein and predict the protein structures in a well of 200 million proteins. That's literally all the catalog proteins known to science. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. I mean, if algorithms could get a Nobel Prize for medicine, that would be it. That's probably it, right? Because cause now what, it, what yeah. you know, the fact, so, we, so we, we, we made the data set of those protein structures openly available so that other researchers can just access them for free. And I think so far we have something like 1.3 million biologists around the world who well. are now just accessing them and using those. So if you're in biology probably or life sciences, this is... People say this has been an incredible collaborative exactly. tool now to do what we've taken us probably quite a long time to get to. So you're starting to see these impacts of AI in science, it could be biology, it's in physics, uh, it could go on about what we're doing in quantum AI, in, in advancing quantum. So there's so many more applications, even in helping us tackle societal challenges. Can I, can I give you please. one of my yeah, favorite yeah, examples? Yeah, please, yeah. We, it's something that I've, yeah. we, we just did recently, at least announced. So one of the things that's troubling in the world is obviously, you know, there's all kinds of systems where we're not able to f understand the effects of climate change, sustainability. Floods are one example. Uh, so it turns out that, you know, if you're able to predict 
floods, especially in, in especially low-income countries, but also even here in the United States, but especially in low-income countries, with something like seven days in advance, the, the amount of damage and fatalities to human life goes down dramatically. I think the UN estimate they go down by like 49%. Mm. Just an extra week worth of notice so people can prepare and move and so forth. So this is actually quite hard to predict accurately. Mm. So we've used our AI systems, what began as a small pilots in Bangladesh last year, we then entered parts of India, <laughs> and last month, which is why it's on my mind, yeah. uh, we expanded this and announced that it's now in 80 countries. Wow. So we're sending flood alerts right in 80 What's countries. What does it have a name? Uh, so we created something called Flood Hub, Interesting. where these predictions in 80 mm. countries in areas Amazing. that cover something like 460 million. And it's extraordinary. We're doing similar things with wildfires in California. So there's all these other uses of this technology in very pressing yes. societal areas. So two-part question, James. Back in um, uh, 2010, I wrote a book um, that used to be us, and uh, my favorite chapter was called Average is Over. Um, and it was about how average work won't you know, return average wages, um, as it did during the 50s and 60s. Um, what, if you were if I were updating that chapter for today, um, uh, that was mostly applying to blue-collar workers. Um, I was just at Juniper Networks last week. They told me that they now have an AI system that listens in on every sales call and then afterwards gives the salesperson um, advice on how they did, how to improve, um, and then learning from each one. Um, who is average over for now? I think one of the things... Don't say columnists. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that's um, perhaps underappreciated is just how, you know, so if you had looked at most people doing research on, you know, AI and jobs, as you said, roughly 10 years ago, I think the, the view was that, oh yeah, we're going to, you know, automate repetitive tasks and, and those kinds of things, that's what we're going to automate, right? And that, you know, the, it'd be hard to tackle things like knowledge work and cognitive work and all these things. That's one of the things that's changed, Tom, yeah. because uh, the things that we thought we couldn't do, we now can. Yeah. So I think, it's your question about average, I think these systems are going to be able to complement what most of us are able to do. I mean, we're doing this already at Google, where these systems can work side by side with software developers and coders to help them do better at coding because they can draft code, you know, write code, quite frankly. They can, you know, marketers are using to draft marketing materials and mm. so forth. So I think the, the, the average question is interesting because while these systems, this, so to digress, there's something called Big Bench, which is a benchmark system that looks at, that academics set up to evaluate how well are these systems doing against a whole range of cognitive tasks. It has about mm. 204 of them, things mm. like analytical reasoning, problem solving, summarizing, and so forth. And when we benchmark the most sophisticated systems, they're starting to do as well as the average human in most of those tasks. And you've seen some of these results about test taking and exams and law yeah. exams and medical exams and all of that. I think what that means to your average question is that these systems can probably be quite assistive to most of us mm -hmm. in, in lots of things that we're not the best at. So I think that's one of the most exciting possibilities here to improve that. They're not, by the way, on these benchmarks, they're not yet able to do as well as the best human in any of these 204 categories. I think that's still uh, quite, quite a long way away. Thank but I, I should say though, Tom, 
in all this excitement and all these incredible possibilities, I think it's important to also be incredibly cognizant of the risks and limitations of these systems. Well, let's, let's um, pick up on that. Okay. It's now 2050. Okay. You're still in your job. I'm still in mine. We're here at the Ideas Festival. Um, and um, AI has worked out fantastically. Uh, in terms of work, in terms of privacy, in terms of governance, in terms of economic growth, in terms of equity. How did we get here? Well, I, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a few fundamental things we'll have had to get right for that to be the yeah. outcome, I think, uh, where we're all kind of happy with it. Uh, let me list a few. I think one is that we, we have to have solved this idea of how do we build systems that are very capable, in other words, they can do all the amazingly wonderful things we'd like them to do, but also, quite frankly, don't introduce or worsen any risks and harms mm -hmm. to society. Interesting. So, because we know right now, for example, that these, many of these systems can be toxic, can be biased, can, quite frankly, underperform. Uh, they might, you know, misuse private data that should be kept private. So there are all these kind of capabilities, you know, we've, we've gotten the balance right around very powerful, capable systems that are useful, but also address some of these limitations. So that's kind of one, one. Mm -hmm. area. Um, I think another area is, you know, hopefully we'll have got right this idea of how do we make sure that this actually, we aim this technology at the most beneficial uses Right, so you know, I love this idea of solving for the most helpful systems, addressing healthcare, mm -hmm. life sciences, you know, thought folk, oh, all these incredibly benefit. How do we aim it at those things as opposed to aim it and misuse it? Because mm -hmm. uh, even if it these systems perform well, right. there's always the risk of misuse. Yes. People applying these either misuse that is either criminally or, you know, geopolitically or financially motivated that are not helpful. Uh, in, in all these kind of ways, we don't want these systems to be misused. So mm -hmm. we'll, hopefully we've solved that. Um, I also hope that we'll have solved the idea that, quite frankly, we're benefiting everybody from mm -hmm. this. Um, and everybody, right? Not just the people developing the technology or those who can afford to use it, but this, that's why the question of open access yes. is still a complex right, one. Yeah. Because Part of how everybody benefits is by having access to all these systems. So hopefully we'll have solved that too. But I think there's one that I'd like to throw back at you, because I know you've thought about it, is even if we get all of that right, I think one of the both exciting but perhaps unsettling aspect of these technologies is the fact that we ourselves are going to have to adapt both you know, how we think about what we do, but also how our institutions work, how, you know, how we think about education works. I mean, there are all these kind of adaptation, and I think this is why it's important to have this be a collective conversation between all of us and governments and citizens, because I think I worry about the possibility that you know, we could race ahead with these incredibly exciting technologies, but fail to have our way of, you know, kind of keep up with these systems. Yeah, you know, it's something, uh, James and I did a dialogue, which you can find on YouTube, about this moment, um, which I call a Promethean moment. Uh, Prometheus, the mythical Greek deity who steals fire from Mount Olympus and gives it to humans to build civilization. 
So we know the Promethean moments of the printing press, the scientific revolution, the ag revolution, the industrial revolution, and uh, uh. Yeah, we're living through a Promethean moment. I mean, you know, someone was alive when Gutenberg invented the printing press, and some monk said to some priest, now that is really cool. Um, uh, you mean, I don't have to write this Bible out longhand anymore? Were we just going to stamp them out? And guess what? We are here at such a moment. I mean, this is not just presentism. This is a great leap forward that will change everything. I mean, how we govern, how we... And, and just to throw it back to you, James, I think that um, what's happened is our, gov our, our governing model is very binary. Left, right, um, market, um, uh, um, uh, society, you know. Um, uh, and now MAGA um, and woke. You know, we got all these binaries out there. Um, and if, if there's one place we need innovation now, it's societal innovation. The, the, the distance between where the technology is and where the societal innovation is, is just, uh, it's staggering to me, you know. Um, as, as, as the great Ted Cruz said, the average age in the US Senate today is 147. And um, so looking to them to be the um, ones who, who do this, I think, is, uh, is really, and that's why we can't do this without Google. Google can't do it alone without government, but we need what I call complex adaptive coalitions. The old binary system will not work. And what happens when two binary parties get, um, um, made irrelevant, what do they do? They fall back on identity and tribalism. Sound familiar? Yeah, no, I, 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 mean, I totally agree with that. I mean, part of what we're trying to do at Google uh, is to, you know, quite frankly, balance two things. Um, you know, the shorthand version of it is trying to be both bold in advancing this technology um, because we think of its extraordinary possibilities. Uh, and, you know, in, in the most beneficial way, but also trying to be responsible. So this idea of being bold and responsible, you know, these sound like they're intention, <laughs> uh, and there is, but we actually want to embrace that tension productively. Because that's your answer right? to 2050. We got there because we were both bold and responsible. We got there okay. I yeah. think we have to do both, but yeah. I'll also add we have to do this together. Let me, mm -hmm. let me just give you a couple of, I mean, together meaning governments, citizens, and, and, and all of us. Let me give you a couple of examples which I don't think are questions of technology, but are really technologies, questions of us. I mean, I think in some ways AI is kind of putting a mirror in our face because we, we can complain all we want about bias and toxicity. They're learning from us. That's right. <laughs> Where did you get that idea? Right? <laughs> They're being, we're training on the, right. So a lot of these questions are really questions about us. A good example is, hmm. You know, and this has come up even in the work we're doing uh, on the committees, right? Which is, we say we want fair systems. We say we want unbiased systems. We say we want uh, systems aligned with our values. Okay, great. We agree on that. What does that mean? There's actually a fun paper that some researchers wrote where um, they are, you know, they're asking the question, okay, how do we build, uh, what, what does fair mean? so that we can actually try to build systems that do that. They actually researched this, looking at law journals, ethics, and they came up with, I think it was 27 different definitions mm. of fairness mm. that were all contradictory with each other. Interesting. So I think, I think you know, these are questions on us. In fact, there's a uh, famous philosopher, Daniel Dennett, who actually wrote tongue-in-cheek, something that goes as follows. He said, boy, isn't it a shame that AI hasn't solved in a few years what humanity hasn't solved in two millennia? 
I think there's something to yeah, that. Yeah. What do yeah. we want? Right. Right. You know, you, you quoted um, a philosopher to me once, James, who said, AI will be mankind's last invention. Um, play with that a little bit. Who was that? What was the context? And it's sort of a sister to the quote you just gave. Yeah, I, I, I think the, the essence of the quote, actually several people have actually said this in various forms, including all the way uh, uh, going back to you know, some, some of the pioneers actually in the, in the 50s, actually. Um, I think the essence of the quote is to say, if in fact we do build systems that are general, powerful, able to make discoveries, able to solve these scientific problems, help us, you know, protein folding, do all these amazing scientific discoveries, and quite frankly, advance and improve us, right? Think about what the possibilities might be. Uh, that's, I think, the essence of yeah. it. That's the essence of it. At the same time, there's a hint of a warning in that, too, right? Which I think is an important part of the responsibility, which is if, if we do have such systems as amazingly transformational as they could be, we should also pay attention to the potential risks. Because the last... They need to be responsible. The last great Promethean technology was actually nuclear power, built right. originally as nuclear weaponry, and it was in the hands of government. And this is all being driven by companies. And so it puts a totally different um, you know, level of pressure on, on you all as responsibility. And maybe apropos of that, and then I want to open it to the audience. Could we program the Ten Commandments into BARD? You probably could in the following sense. So there's a, there's a, there's a theme that's emerging, by the way. One of the, one of the ways that many, many researchers, many of us are starting to think, I think one, the, the term of art that's being used is the idea of constitutional AI, which is to try to embody things that we kind of all generally agree on as a kind of a constitution of sorts. Norms. Uh, norms, yeah. if you like, um, uh, is what that is. And, you know, we're all trying to do that. So that's why one of the things, you know, it, when we think about guard railing BARD, for example, which is the interface tool, many of our large models, hopefully some of you have played with that. We're trying to guard rail it that way. So please don't answer the Molotov cocktail question. Please don't, you know, guard rail around things that are abusive. Don't, don't spew out abusive things. So, so you could do that in that sense. But I think the harder question is, is, is a, which is really a, a research question, could you do that for the underlying engine, engine to use that analogy? That's a research yeah, question. Yeah. And I think we, we should solve for that. But even that, though, I throw it back. I mean, you use the Bible. Okay, we're in a global context. So what is that constitution? Right. What are those values? Do we mostly agree on, on them? And I think it's, there's some that we all seem to agree, by the way. One of the things that's been interesting talking to people in different countries and different governments, there's, a, there's almost like a baseline of things I think we all generally agree on. Mm -hmm. uh, things like, you know, uh, toxicity and sexism and, racism. you know, racism, things like, you know, uh, dangerous things for under, underage minors. The, the, you know, all, all, there's a set of things, if you look at the norms that people have, they agree on this. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff above that that is... That is problematic. I remember reading one review where somebody who had played with Bard, by the way, uh, thought he was biased because it said climate change was real. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Right. Make of that what you will. Yeah, so there's other yeah. things that we don't yes. kind of agree on. 
<laughs> that are, you know, so how would you, so these are, that's yeah. why I keep saying that these, many of these are questions for us. You know, how do we want to think about it? And, and also in a global context, how do we coordinate this? How do we do this with our allies, our friends, and ultimately, quite frankly, everybody? Yes. Uh, how, do we, how do we come to some understanding of these things? Because it, it, it really can't be governed ultimately unless it's governed together, you know. Um, the floor is open, um, right here. Uh, going back to your Promethean moment at the uh, printing press, Tom, I'm sure the, sec the first monk said, yeah, but it's going to put me out of business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then we kept hearing that in the ag revolution and the sure. industrial revolution and the computer revolution. So I asked James, my question is back to your panel with the president, impact on the workforce, what new jobs will AI create? So the, the, um, on the jobs question, which is a very important question, this actually happens to be an area that I've spent quite a bit of time researching together with uh, other academics. I think if you look at the most uh, recent research, it roughly says roughly three things. Um, it roughly says three things. That there'll be some jobs that will decline because the tasks involved in those jobs will, will start to be done by machines. So there will be some jobs lost, if you like. There will also be some jobs gained. Now, the jobs gained tend to be of two kinds. Uh, there'll be jobs gained in the sense that exi some existing occupations, the demand for them will go up. Uh, and then there'll be some new occupations that will emerge. It's kind of like what happened with, if we're looking back in 1995, uh, you know, the B Bureau of Labor Statistics, which kind of tracks these roughly 800 occupation categories, did not have a category called web designer. It didn't exist. Just like today, if you go look at the job occupations, roughly 800 of them, they don't have a category called prompt engineer. It doesn't exist, although we know that's science. So, so I think you're going to have two kinds of jobs gained, new ones and some other ones. But I think there's a third aspect to this you know, that, that's actually perhaps even more important, is the jobs changed phenomena, hmm. where many, many more jobs will just be different. How we spend our time will be different. It's kind of like the old bank teller example. A bank teller in 1970 spent all the time counting your money to take it from you and give it back to you. That was before ATMs and cash machines. They don't spend their time doing that now. Uh, you know, think about the use of email. So there's a whole bunch of jobs that will change. And that's actually seems to be the bigger impact. So this idea of complementing what people do. So I think, but in all of that, it's the reason why the Skills question is really, really important because if some jobs are declining, some are growing, people may need to shift or change jobs. If jobs themselves are changing, the skills are going to need to evolve and change. So that's why that's such an important question. You, know, you go in some ways from problem solving to problem finding becomes a yeah. really important job. You know, that's exactly what can right. Yes. Young lady there, yeah. First of all, great banter. Love the back and forth. It was awesome. Um, I work in the medical device industry, and we have some devices that incorporate AI. I'm curious, because we get a lot of pushback on how it's, uh, is it believable? Is it a leap of faith? Is this actually working? Hmm. How is the FDA going to be involved with this, with this uh, as, you know, if at all? And how, how do you envision that happening, and is there progress? 
Well, th th thank you for the question. Uh, well, first of all, I, I think the FDA should be involved. I think there's many, many agencies that should be involved, actually, in evaluating how these systems will be used in every single sector. One thing I will say, though, which I think is an important thing to keep in mind of, we, 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 we're, we're mostly thinking of this technology as, as having just arrived last year. That's actually not the case. In fact, uh, back to the history, there's a wonderful uh, historian of AI who said uh, something along the lines of, it's actually quite interesting that as soon as AI becomes useful, we stop calling it AI, and we just call it whatever the thing Google is. Maps. Right, so yeah, actually Google Maps is a great example. Billions of people are using Google Maps, that's AI. Mm -hmm. A billion, now I think it's 1.3 billion people use uh, Google Translate, that's AI. So there's a whole bunch of you know, if, you, if you're probably using a device today, you're probably using AI even before what happened last year. So I think we have to keep that in mind that most technology now uses machine learning and AI techniques in some form or fashion. It may not be directly visible to you or presented to you that way, but that's what they're doing. But I think every agency is gonna to have to think about the, to your question about one of the limitations, and this limitation, by the way, is particularly acute with these large language model-based systems. Again, large language models are not everything in AI, but with large language models, yes, one of the limitations is factuality. They'll make stuff up sometimes. They'll, you know, the so-called hallucination, sometimes they'll just be factually incorrect. So I think, in, in, so in, in medicine, that's why it's actually important in those fields, if you're gonna use these large language model-based systems, how do you make sure we ground them and how do we make sure we train them on better data? And how do we make sure we fine-tune them properly? And that's still work that's in process. So, I'd, you know, so when it comes to applying large language models specifically, I would proceed a little cautiously in sectors like healthcare. Max, you touched on it, but could you talk a bit more about alignment and sort of internally how you, <clears throat> if you ask, you know, Bard, optimize the Google code base, and it says, I'll just delete it. Um, how do you avoid that and sort of iterate and find those things that maybe we wouldn't think about in terms of bias and morality as you develop these systems? Yeah, so make sure I understand the question. I think if you're asking, should you believe Bard, is that the question? And, or, no, so as, you're, as you're developing the systems, and you might give it a prompt to say, solve climate change, Get rid of all the humans. Uh, no. How do you, like, as you're iterating on these systems, maybe find those things that we wouldn't think about? You know, Alignment. Never consider that, but the AI might say that's the best option. Yeah. So, so I guess a couple of things. First, I wouldn't ask Bard to solve climate change. I think there are other AI systems that I'd actually use to solve that. Because <laughs> Bard is, you know, is, these are large language model-based systems. But I think if the question is how do we solve the question of alignment uh, in general? I think that's actually one of the mo most fundamental research questions. Explain to people what alignment is in this context. So uh, alignment is the idea of how do you make sure that in fact these systems generate outputs, any of them, that are aligned with our best interests and our benefit as opposed to things that might have adverse effects, like it decides to get rid of human beings or something of that form. This is actually very one of the most important areas, I think, in, in, in responsible AI. And it's also one of the reasons why, at Google, we've been trying to be very careful and thoughtful about putting out the most sophisticated systems, because these are still research questions. 
uh, to think about this. You know, there's a lot of research still going on, and I think some of the most impressive work that we're trying to learn from, and we're doing that, some of this ourselves, is someone like Stuart Russell at Berkeley is trying to use what's called inverse reinforcement learning to actually try to solve these questions of uh, alignment. We're doing some research, but this is a very active field. How do you make sure the goals are our goals? Uh, first of all, we have to say what our goals are, but once we do, how do we make sure you know, those goals are actually aligned with what we want? Uh, and I think that's important, but I think that's why guardrailing these ideas of constitutional AI is a way to do that, uh, a way we do what, what's often called adversarial uh, generative testing to examine the output. So one of the things you'll notice, by the way, if you're using BARD, um, we try to do a couple of things quite explicitly. So you often may, if you, I don't know if you've played with Bob, but you'll find that it doesn't just start generating outputs straight away. It kind of spins its wheel a little bit. What we're doing behind the scenes, by the way, is we're running your same prompt 16 times uh, and generatively adversarially testing each of those outputs <laughs> to see whether they make sense or not. And you may have also noticed, I hope people actually play with this, when it gives you the output, there's a little button called alternative drafts. We actually put that there so you see that these systems are not a single source of truth. They actually will generate other kinds of outputs. So we actually want, maybe we should highlight this more, people to go look at those alternative outputs. And sometimes they'll disagree with each other. This is our attempt to actually try to be transparent about these systems don't have a single answer. They're not like a database these large language model-based systems where you're just simply extracting a perfectly correct answer every single time. Uh, just what you want to let, yeah, you. We're developing, children today can't write. It's really pretty sad. So we're developing a program through AI on teaching them written language. And I played the student and wrote what I thought as a PhD, a very good paragraph, and I got a 10%. So if that happens to children in the age of literacy today, they're going to be very discouraged and quit. So do you have anything to say about this, or are we going to get better algorithms on it? Well, first of all, I hope we get better algorithms on it. I think education is actually one of the most profound areas where I think these technologies are both opening up possibilities to understand intelligence and learning and smarts, but also are going to give assistive tools. The example that strikes me is it's not too long ago when we used to think that only kids who can do math in their heads are smart, right? I mean, that's right. And if you can do that, if you could memorize facts, you are not very smart, right? But we know that that's not true. You can be smart in many number of ways. So I think these tools are also kind of liberating that a bit, but they're also quite assistive. And here I'm if I may, I'll, I'll, I'll plug one organization. I think I can because it's a nonprofit. That's, so that's a good thing. Khan Academy. So I don't know if you've seen what Khan Academy has been doing with AI. I think it's quite remarkable in, in trying to use these systems in an assistive way to learners. So it doesn't give them the answer. It tries to kind of coach them through the answer. You say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? What have you tried this? So I think there are very innovative ways in education to use these systems. Uh, Gotham in the back, you had a question. Thanks, Tom. So what strikes me about AI more than anything else is that it's a catalytic technology. That is, it's not just the stuff that Google does, but if you're in biotech, AI transforms what you do. Manufacturing, AI transforms what you do. And to my, handy, my handy summary of what AI is good at is it's good at teasing out subtle interactions of complex relationships that are embedded in very large data sets. 
and those data sets are crucial to the performance of it, as, as we're learning with GPT, as we see, as the massive, as the increase in the data set. But what that strikes me is what that means is the primer, primacy of very large data sets creates the incentives towards feudal corporate structures, where the, small, the, the concentration in, a, in small numbers of very, very large institutions that are able to capture these enormously large data sets and the fact that AI goes across all industries means that this is going to in, in, in cause industrial transformations of a nature that we're not used to seeing, right, and concentration. So I know this is a difficult thing to ask someone from Google, <laughs> but is there a policy response ranging from antitrust to taxes on concentration that we should be thinking about now to diffuse that potential, in, that potential where essentially natural market forces are going to cause concentrations that are socially unhealthy, even if they're economically optimal? Yeah, no, I appreciate the question, Alice, and I, and I think, you know, as a societal and economic question, we should always be concerned about concentration. We should always be concer concerned about kind of, you know, corporations in that regard, absolutely, because this goes against so many things. Uh, societal benefit, entrepreneurship, innovation, etc. I will say, though, that on AI in particular, uh, there are two things that are worth keeping in mind that I think um, perhaps are counterintuitive. So if you look at what's happening in generative AI, and just to use that example, it turns out that the data is not the differentiator, actually. So why do I say that? You know, because if it was, you'd probably, probably only see Google and Microsoft, maybe, because you say, yeah, the big corporations have access to lots of data, so therefore, they're leaders. But if you look at, look at who are the frontier teams on generative AI, yes, they include our teams at Google and Microsoft, but you've got OpenAI, you've got Anthropic, you've got any number of these startup companies who don't have any, I mean, some of these are 50-person companies, so they don't have any monopoly or access, differential access to data. They're all training off the internet. So I think the notion that data is in that form is not true in every part of AI. It's certainly not generative AI. It may be true in other areas, so I, but it's worth, I just wanted to point that out. The other thing I'll point out on data, by the way, I know Tom wants me to give a short answer on this. But no, please, <laughs> go ahead. There. The other thing on data is to realize that there are fields in AI where the data that's actually making the difference is actually synthetically generated data. In AlphaFold, mm. there was no data on those proteins. Right? So, so, so the evolution of data and how to think about it, well, of course, data is important, but the evolution of its ownership, its, its control, its access, is a much, much more democratized question that perhaps people realize, I think. So um, unfortunately, our time is out, but tell me this wasn't the best AI panel at the Ideas Festival. James Van Yeeka is Senior Vice President of Research Technology and Society at Google and Alphabet. He leads efforts to responsibly shape and advance innovations, including in AI, machine learning, and quantum computing. He served under President Obama as Vice Chair of the Global Development Council and was a senior partner at McKinsey & Company. Thomas Friedman is an author and journalist and has been a foreign affairs columnist for the New York Times since 1995. He's reported on U.S. domestic politics and foreign policy, the Middle East, international economics, the environment, biodiversity, and energy. Friedman is the author of seven books, including From Beirut to Jerusalem and The World is Flat. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. 
Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.